0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced last week that he would be resigning. In 2002, in an article in The Spectator about how he thinks people wrongly blame British colonialism for Africa's problems, he wrote, The continent may be a blot, but it is not a blot upon our conscience. The problem is not that we were once in charge, but that we are not in charge anymore. Our guest, historian Caroline Elkins, documents the dark side of the British Empire in her new book, Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire. That empire became the largest empire in history and by 1920 included 24% of the earth's landmass. Elkin spoke with guest interviewer Arun Venugopal, who's a senior reporter in the Race and Justice Unit at public radio station WNYC in New York. They spoke before Johnson's resignation announcement. Here's Arun with more. This year marked the Platinum Jubilee of Elizabeth II, her
1: 70th year as the Queen of England. It's the first time any British monarch has celebrated a Platinum Jubilee. When Queen Elizabeth II took the throne in 1952, the British Empire Encompassed parts of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and the Pacific, and included 700 million people. In our new book, our guest Caroline Elkins looks at how the use of violence was central to the spread and maintenance of the British Empire, even as it portrayed itself self-servingly as a benevolent force. The book is called Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire, and it explores how colonial officials from India to Malaya to South Africa hid evidence of their violent practices while building the largest empire in human history. In the 1990s, Caroline Elkins began to write her dissertation about Britain's civilizing mission during the last years of colonial rule in Kenya but then she discovered British officials had created a vast network of secret detention camps that housed as many as one and a half million members of Kenya's Kikuyu community. In those camps, officials practiced unimaginably sadistic forms of torture upon Kikuyu men and women, along with sexual violence. Her revelations were published in her first book, Imperial Reckoning, the untold story of Britain's gulag in Kenya, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2006. Caroline Elkins is professor of history and of African and African-American studies at Harvard University and the founding director of Harvard Center for African Studies. And she joins us now. Caroline Elkins, welcome to Fresh Air.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Arun.
1: Much of your book deals with the idea of liberal imperialism. What does that mean?
2: Yeah, liberal imperialism is Britain's civilizing mission, right? It's white man's burden. This idea that it was going to bring democracy and rule of law and free market to, you know, 700 million subjects across a quarter of the world's landmass. And, you know, all empires are violent, but it takes a particular form in the British Empire because coercion isn't just about establishing and maintaining authority over subject populations. It's actually part of reform, this idea... That you have to have local populations feel suffering, to feel pain, to experience forced labor, that these in fact bring about a kind of developmentalism, a kind of uh, movement into, if you will, adulthood and eventually into independence. As Britain begins to expand its empire overseas and confronts distant places with so-called backward people with these strange religions and dependent relationships, the question becomes, can these people with different skin colors become like us? And skin color becomes the mark of difference.
1: Uh, Let's talk about the moral effect that you referred to earlier. A leading British military theorist, you quote, Colonel Charles Caldwell, said the enemy must be made to feel a moral superiority throughout. You say his approach was embraced across the empire, that it helped fuse battlefield strategies with the white man's burden. But what does it mean in practice?
2: You know, in practice, it means untold suffering. It means that gloves are off and that any kind of sort of coercive tactic whether it be the use of detention camps, whether it's torture, whether it's scorched earth policy, um, the level of violence is extraordinary. And what it means for somebody like Caldwell is that you can explain the violence by the fact that it has a moral quality to it it has a moral if you will redemptive effect battlefields soldiers colonial administrators missionaries they many of them believed in the in the sort of liber, you know the, the nature of coercion and the ways in which it was part and parcel of this civilizing mission
1: british legal experts you write wrestled with distinctions between civilized and uncivilized some went so far as to create categories of civilized barbarian and savage these categories, I guess, relied on all the Western anthropologists and other academics who were crisscrossing the empire, measuring skull sizes and whatnot of natives and deciding how civilized a tribe was. Scholarship was quite critical to the imperial project, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, it absolutely was. And I think that the nature by which, if you will, academics, people who were, as you're saying, scholars at the time, were complicit in the colonial project, lending credence, lending sort of scholarly heft. And it's also important to bear in mind that this is an era in the 19th century of the upswing of scientific racism. And what becomes the marker of difference is skin color. Whites are at one end and the Brits at the top of that of that, of that sort of uh, you know p- top of the pile, on the on the far end of the other spectrum are, are blacks from Africa with all other shades in between, and of course the you know Brits and others are capable of racializing subjects such that Afrikaners in South Africa and the Irish um, also become racialized such that they are seen as being you know sort of uh, of a lesser breed if you will than um, Anglo Saxons in, in Britain.
1: One economist, Utsa Patnaik, who received her doctorate from Oxford, estimated that over the course of 200 years, the British siphoned off an amount of around $45 trillion from India. (laughs) How did they do this?
2: You know, look, it's, it's a rather extraordinary arc, right? When we think about the nature of the East India Company is set up back in the in the early 17th century, um, and endures all the way into, you know, it becomes the the Raj in 1857 and endures until 1947. So you have a very long period of time. And there's all sorts of ways in which this takes place, and some of which is by establishing taxation policies, um, squeezing local peasants. Um, we see the, frankly, the, you know, some of the diamonds that are sitting in the, that are part of the monarchy's crown jewels, um, as you well know, are, are are being demanded you know to, to have them return, and these are we 're talking massive sums of money and then of course, you know the East India Company and then eventually the Raj is is a huge you know enormous cash cow for the British Empire in a whole range of ways, whether it 's from exports, whether certainly during the second World War, many would argue that the contribution to the war effort in the second World War by India really tipped the scales for Britain, um, holding back um, you know the Japanese coming into in, into the region and again. Costing dearly, um, and in fact, Britain becomes a borrower <laughs> from India during wartime, um, and so it is of no surprise to me that we see that kind of number. And the question, of course, that it raises is: is you know, what accounting has to take place in the in the here and now for that? And, and arguments are made from other parts of the empire in, in a similar fashion.
1: It's not unusual even these days to um, to hear about. I guess, the benefits of empire upon a place like India, oh, you know, we gave them the railroads, the, the gift of English, when in fact, the, 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 the British, or the, rather the Indian economy was something like 25%, I think, of the world's GDP in, in the 18th century, and then about 3% when the Brits left. It, it's an it's enormous disconnect from the reality of what
2: happened, right? Absolutely, and and you know we can take that and once in the, you know Britain you know quote unquote loses Indian in forty seven Malaya steps in and becomes the cash cow, um, in the post war period, and you know I just think that the, you know the degree to which we you know understand this period of time and the degree to which um, these colonies are extremely important, you know to as I said both the material and the social and and uh, nationalistic views of empire and but you know I think we also have to step back for a moment if we think about empire as a balance sheet right we add it up on both sides like a ledger all the good all the bad at the end of the day the conversation doesn't get us very far in my view and I think where we need to sort of move ourselves in the direction of is is to accept to be frank as historical fact that this was a course of empire that it drained enormous resources and I think this question about liberal imperialism, the nature of reform and coercion, it makes it very hard to have arguments about violence and exploitation stick if we don't see that we have both coercion and reform as two sides of the same coin. And that's really what I think I'm, I'm trying to get at in, in what is a, a rather lengthy um, but, but troubling story that unfolds over about 800 pages or so. <laughs>
1: The U.S. essentially becomes the dominant world power in the 20th century. Did it also practice similar sort of, uh, I guess, a paradox of, you know, upholding freedoms, uh, certain liberties, while at the same time, you know, maintaining in the same way that British Empire had uh, coercive tactics against non-white populations?
2: Sure. I mean, we can certainly see this. We can take it in turn, right, both internationally and domestically. Internationally, with our counterinsurgency policies, we quite literally took the book from Britain. Um, Sir Robert Thompson was sent over from Malaya to uh, advise the the Johnson Kennedy Nixon administrations in Vietnam. Strategic Hamlet is is taken directly from villagization policies with all of the kinds of terror and dislocation and suffering that come along with it. And we can go all the way to all the way down the present day to Iraq and Afghanistan, right? When we think about the ways in which the Petraeus report looks to Britain, looks to Britain say they got counterinsurgency right in places like Malaya. And what I'm saying is, depends on what you mean by right, but certainly these are incredibly, incredibly coercive um, systems. So this this notion of hearts and minds campaigns that, that the United States ostensibly brings to the rest of the world, today we call it freedom and democracy, whatever the case may be, comes directly from Britain. And then, of course, domestically, when we also think about the ways in which we deal with so-called, quote-unquote, subject populations in the United States, those who are not some of the original, sort of, if if you're an originalist with our Constitution, thinking about those who sort of wrote that and and were benefiting from it um, back at the founding of our own nation. And we certainly see the similar kinds of ways in which exclusion and inclusion happens under the banner of liberalism, and they're able to get away with it, and we see that happening all the way down to the present day.
1: Something that seems to go... Completely unremarked upon is that the US went from fighting for its freedom from Britain and fought it again in the War of 1812, and yet eventually these two countries become extremely close allies. We refer to the special relationship between the US and Britain. What's special about this relationship?
2: Let's start our story for now, sort of around the time of World War II, and obviously, you know, the legendary relationship between Churchill and, and FDR, and FDR always sort of looked a little askance at Churchill, you know, thought he was a Tory, a real Tory of the old sort. What, what is
1: that what does that mean?
2: <laughs> well, that means, you know, really in many ways, sort of believing in sort of the hierarchical nature of rule, of the exceptionalism of Britain, of the ways in which Um, you know, white population should be dominating throughout the world. And and FDR, we so often, you know, associate him with, with the four freedoms and the like. And he was dogmatic about wanting to dismantle the British Empire after the Second World War. Now, what we see is that Second World War comes to a close and the opposite happens. And in part, this happens because the United States needs Britain in the emerging Cold War. And so eventually we see the United States not only allowing Britain, turning a blind eye to what's going on, but actually co-opting them and having them assist the United States. British Guiana would be a great example where, you know, Britain is basically doing the dirty work for the Americans. And we see this playing out over time. And we can then fast forward it all the way up to, you know, new labor under, under Tony Blair and George W. Bush and, folks scratching their head about how could, you know, how could these two be such such bedfellows and it's, it's no surprise whatsoever and, and literally the language that Tony Blair uses at the time is that we're, or his government does, is that we are executing a quote-unquote new liberal imperialism and they are joined at the hip with the United States and so this special relationship is such that it, and make no mistake, it's uneasy at times. Certainly there are times when the United States is really pushing hard to dismantle uh, the sterling area, to really to, to insert itself as 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 um, sort of the dominant economic force in the world. But this special relationship continues and much of it, some of it at least, rests on these shared notions of racial hierarchy, on these shared notions of, of global dominance, and certainly of maintaining a stronghold against the, the rising Cold War in the Soviet Union.
1: In recent years, the debate over Western history and colonial sins has is- broken out of academic circles, and it's pretty much gone mainstream. Uh, I'd like to play a clip. It's a little raucous, uh, but it's from the TV show Good Morning Britain, and it primarily features a black historian, Kehinde Andrews, engaging in a back and forth with Piers Morgan and other hosts, all of whom, I should add, are white. Uh, Let's hear that. The reality is that the history of this country is built on racism, and therefore everybody
2: involved in it, it probably has a really racist Why past, and it's a, a problem. I admit yeah. this is a problem for look, you. You know what look, my, my problem? I admit, it, I admit, my a, problem. <laughs> problem. <laughs> <I'm laughs> is you. You're a smart guy.
3: My problem is when <laughs> smart, smart people like you <laughs> no, <laughs> basically say this country was built on racism. It was. It's full of racism... Do you mean and remains racist, built, right? Do you right. mean because it's
1: built on colonialism? That's a really good example. I
3: argument. I have a problem with that position. I think it's a load of old baloney when you say that. I think it's a great country, right? Great country I know, and you hate to stay there. I understand but why I'm not, not you you be, like this am, country. I'm, I'm not going to be told to feel ashamed of my country just because you say uh, we're about a country. Just, <laughs> just a minute,
4: Piers, just a minute. Otherwise, I don't get to say anything, Piers. Just <laughs> calm down, right? Why don't you like living in this country?
2: Why don't I like
3: living yeah, in this country? because this is,
4: I think you
2: know why you're do a, you live in this country? You're hate you know The unfortunate truth is that my parents, my
3: my family were taken in slavery to the Caribbean and had to migrate here because they were so poor in the Caribbean. But what am I... my choice. Why do you still live here when you're a successful man? You've got enough money to live somewhere else. Why do you live in this country? And them. this
1: is the problem with Churchill. Like this colonialism, this imper- imperialism, has ruined the other
3: parts of the, co- the world around. Going no, to that's live. not my question. My question is
1: if you, no, hate, of do you hate, hate everything this country hate.
3: stands for, I don't hate this country, but well, I do. You said that you, you believe we're a racist country yes. built on racism yes. and, must, and remain racist. Yeah. Why? I'm why would you? <laughs> yes. So why would so you? a, 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 a good <laughs> A black man who has the means to leave the country. Why would you stay here?
1: Good morning, Britain, for you.
2: Defensive much?
1: <laughs> Not at all. I mean, what struck me, the first thing was that they, on a morning show like this, I guess it's similar to Good Morning America, is that here the, the hosts use a black historian's criticism of, uh, of imperialism as an excuse, basically, to ask him, why doesn't you just go somewhere else?
2: Well, that, that in, and of its, you know, in and of itself should tell you something, right? And I think, look, I think, all joking aside, it, it's a perfect clip. And even that statement, why don't you go somewhere else? Beginning in 1948, Britain instituted a set of policies to basically create a kind of, of imperial citizenship as they were beginning to lose their, their empire. Over the course of several decades, that does an incomplete turnaround, right? 180 degrees, such that immigration laws become tighter and tighter in Britain. We see a deliberate effort to, if you will, under sort of the banner of the Tory party at one point, you know, to keep Britain white. And I raised this question in my book about this through line, right? And this question going back around to our conversation about developmentalism, the idea that one day you two brown and black subjects will be like us. But I raised this question of saying for many in Britain, not all, but for many, the question remains, can these brown and black subjects or former subjects really be British? And you just heard the answer to that, which is no, (laughs) right? If you don't like it here, go somewhere else. And I think in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's a real, if you will, colonial reckoning. It's a kind of reckoning that we see in Britain. It's a kind of reckoning and is similar to draw the parallels that we see happening in the United States. In this developmentalist model, are you know, can these populations be like us? And of course, developmentalism is always built around this principle of they'll be like us one day, but not yet, just not yet. And you know what, Arun, not yet never comes. Um, and <clears throat> Recently, there was a Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities uh, report, 2021. And, you know, look, it, it's, it's, it found in the report that, quote, unquote, there's no systematic or institutional racism. He went on, the report goes on to describe um, empire and the rest, and it talks about how, you know, there's, and it says that there's a new story about the Caribbean experiences that that speaks to the slave period of not only being about profit and suffering – but how culturally African people transform themselves and remodel themselves as African to to Britain. And I mean, think about what that report says. It's saying that slavery was kind of a good thing because it made them British. (laughs) And this is happening in 2021.
1: When did Britain become first involved in, in colonizing Kenya?
2: Yeah, I mean, Britain became involved in colonizing East Africa at the end of the 19th century, and it's really in the 20th century that it establishes, it moves from the East African protectorate and establishes Kenya as being sort of a standalone colony. Um, And Kenya became what became the quintessential settler colony. Settlers were brought in, it was on their sort of backs and sort of their their privilege that large plantations were established for the growth of tea and coffee and um, land was taken from local Africans in order to do that. What became very famous was the White Highlands, and, and the White Highlands was some of the very best land in Kenya, which, of course, became exclusively white. None of the local population uh, could own or, or cultivate this land um, outside of, of the plantations owned by European settlers. And, and of course, Britain remains in Kenya from that period of time all the way until 1963, when it gains its independence after um, what was one of the, the bloodiest wars in the history of the British Empire, um, the Mau Mau Emergency. It's during that period of time that Britain detained nearly the entire Kikuyu population of, of uh, nearly 1.5 million um, in order to suppress this uprising that was demanding Ithaka and Al-Yalvi or land and freedom. Um, and it was during this period of time, of course, that we see some of the most um, horrific systematized violence unfold, um, as I said, in the history of uh, the British Empire.
0: We're listening to the interview, our guest interviewer, Arun Venugopal, recorded with Caroline Elkins, author of the new book, Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire. We'll hear more of the interview after a break, and TV critic David Bianculli will review tonight's return of Better Call Saul, which has just a few episodes before the series finale. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to the interview, our guest interviewer, Arun Venugopal, recorded with Caroline Elkins. She's a professor of history and of African and African-American studies at Harvard University and the founding director of Harvard's Center for African Studies. Her new book, Legacy of Violence, a History of the British Empire, is about how violence was central to how the British expanded their empire and maintained control over it. It was the largest empire in human history. When
1: you were a graduate student setting out on your dissertation project back in the 1990s, you thought you'd be writing about the success of Britain's so-called civilizing mission during the last years of colonial rule in Kenya. It sounds like you once held the British Empire in fairly high regard. Did you?
2: You know, certainly the, you know, I... (laughs) I guess we're all young and naive at one point, right, Arun? <laughs> and, you know, but, I, but I think it gets back to, and certainly I wasn't so naive as to not to think that there weren't one-offs, that there wasn't violence in empire. And, and that's how, how Kenya had always been written about, right? When there were violent episodes, you explained it as an aberration, as a one-off, as a bad apple of a colonial officer. And what I came to find at the end of my research was that no, this not only in fact was that not the case, but it was completely systemic, it was part and parcel of the structures of colonial rule, the ways in which coercion was infused within the civilizing mission, that these played out with dramatic and and just consequential effects in Kenya, and that was a you know that was a sort of an eye opener for me. Obviously, it was about ten years of doing research, and and then the question became, which was raised with me of uh, uh, you know is Kenya an exception? And that's how it was explained. And, you know, I don't want to get off topic, but I debated Nigel Farage around this. And Nigel Farage is, as you know, is the leader of the the (laughs) party Party, very far right. And he just went on and on about how Kenya was the exception. So sorry, hands up, we did terrible things, let's move on. And so I spent, you know, about 15 years doing research, creating and writing legacy of violence to really answer that question. Was Kenya an aberration? And, And the answer to that is no. For your first
1: book, Imperial Reckoning, you, you didn't just wade through these old dusty historical archives. You actually got to know members of the Kiku community. You had meals with them decades after they'd been imprisoned by the British, uh, tortured by them as well. You also spent time at country clubs and in the suburbs of Nairobi with white settlers and missionaries and former colonial officials who would openly discuss, I guess, what happened in the detention camps with you, as you wrote, over tea or a gin and tonic served by
2: African houseboys or waiters. What did they tell you? It was extraordinary. You know, I think that at that time, I was doing research in the 1990s, and the normative framework was still very, if you will, white colonial. And I would sit, as you said, and have their African waiters in white gloves sort of serve me a A gin and tonic as the sun was setting, and they would talk about horrific forms of violence. When I say torture, that was just stomach-turning, extraordinary, like it was yesterday's weather. There was no sense that from these individuals recounting these stories to me, and this thing in particular, some, some former colonial officials, that they'd done anything wrong, that this was part of what they were supposed to be doing in the so-called civilizing mission, and that when they were all finished, it was declared a triumph. Many of these same colonial officers received OBEs, Orders of the British Empire, from the Queen. Some, you know, not in Kenya, but elsewhere, were knighted. And so this sense of confirming, creating a sort of historical fact out of political fiction maintained itself, whether it was in Kenya or, you know, back in London. Your
1: findings served as the basis for an unprecedented legal claim filed by five Mau Mau detention camp survivors against the British government. Um, you also served as an expert witness in the legal proceedings. And in 2013, the British government announced a settlement with the Mau Mau claimants, offered an official apology expressing sincere regret, uh, provide a 20 million pound financial payout for several thousand survivors helped establish a monument in Nairobi dedicated to all those who were tortured during the uprising. I was struck, though, by the fact that some of the Kenyans who traveled to London for the court proceedings against the British government, they really wanted to meet the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, and they seemed to be fans.
2: What do you make of that? It's a great question, and I was so... I was there with them in London during the context of the trial happened at a few different moments in time, And they desperately wanted to have an audience with the Queen. And when they were given an opportunity to to visit around London and the rest that they wanted, the first place they wanted to go and see is Buckingham Palace. Now recall, her portrait hung in every detention camp in Kenya. They were forced to sing, God Save the Queen. And I think it gets to sort of some of the very – the real complexities about the impact of colonialism and and, and British imperial rule, which is the the internalization of British power structures, the reverence for the monarchy, and the sense in these claimants' case that they were coming to London to seek justice from Her Majesty – Now, obviously, it's Her Majesty's government who they are suing. But really, for some of them in their minds, it was to the Queen herself who was going to be the arbiter of justice. Yes, there were terrible things that were done. And at the same time, Her Majesty is still who we look to as our symbolic head of state.
1: Do you yourself watch these costume dramas uh, like The Crown oh, all the time. or Bridgerton? I can't get enough
2: of them. <laughs> I'm a Netflix junkie.
1: <laughs> How do you explain their appeal? I mean, the inter- the enduring appeal of British royalty
2: and the monarch. I mean, and that too across the world, really. Make no mistake; there is not a single thing that came about with empire, monarchy, and nation, and the role of monarchy in projecting it that was not carefully choreographed, stylized. Projected, um, the monarchy's power flows from two main sources: the Church of England and the Empire. And so, I think, in that sense, this this sense of uh, of an establishment, if you will, an institution that is that is greater and higher than all of us. And the degree to which we as viewers internalize this, the degree to which you know the claimants in that Mau Mau High Court case that you referenced, internalized it. And I think in that sense, I think we're at a crossroads when we think about sort of ultimately the queen passing um, in future years and and what happens to the monarchy behind that. But make no mistake, the monarchy has been exceptional in reinventing and inventing itself and maintaining its hold on these two sources of sort of the two wellsprings of power. So when you watch, you know, the crown, loved it, watched it. I watched Queen Victoria. I watched all of it. I'm actually looking for how these things are choreographed and how we understand and how the monarchy is projected. And it's, you have to respect it for being an incredible operation in in maintaining its allure, maintaining its mystique, and most importantly, of maintaining its sense of symbolic power. As
1: someone who studies empires, I know you focus on the British empire, but where would you place uh, the U.S.? Where are we in our arc?
2: But, you know, I think as somebody who studies empires, the story is not good. We are certainly, I would see us in decline and, and, and rapidly declining. You know, obviously we've got one of the largest, you know, the largest economy in the world. And yet at the same time, there are certain markers that we look for. And if we look at the nature of, for example, the education level and health of our workforce, you know, do we have skilled and healthy labor? If you look at the nature by which our literacy rates, our math literacy rates, You know, if you look at all these kinds of benchmarks, we are so far behind. We're we're behind countries in the global south. When we think about sort of the move towards sort of socioeconomic rights, what we know, and this kind of sort of brings us in the realm of business, you know, colleagues of mine at at Harvard Business School, Michael Porter and Jan Rifkin, write about, you know, how do countries stay competitive? Well, they stay competitive through growth and shared prosperity. And if you look at the nature in which we are missing the ladder dramatically in the United States, it begs the question of where are we as an empire? We're certainly an informal empire. We have been for many years. You'd be hard-pressed not to see us in decline. You'd also be hard-pressed not to see us as tacking behind, if you will, certain global south countries on certain benchmarks.
1: Caroline Elkins, thanks so much for being here with us today.
2: Thank you so much, Arun.
0: Caroline Elkins is the author of Legacy of Violence, a History of the British Empire. She spoke with our guest interviewer, Arun Venegopal. Arun is a senior reporter for the WNYC Race and Justice Unit. After we take a short break, David Bianculli will review The Return of Better Call Saul. The final handful of episodes begins airing tonight. This is Fresh Air.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. 92% 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teladoc.com slash fresh air.
0: This is Fresh Air. 14 years ago, in 2008... Vince Gilligan created a drama series for AMC called Breaking Bad. It lasted for five years, and our TV critic David Bianculli ended up calling it his favorite TV drama series of all time. But he says there's another currently running TV series that soon may unseat it. That show, also from AMC, is Better Call Saul, which tonight begins presenting its final handful of episodes before calling it quits. Here's David's review. Better Call
3: Saul premiered in 2015, and tonight begins presenting the final episodes in its sixth and last season. Vince Gilligan is behind Better Call Saul 2, along with co-creator Peter Gould. They and their creative team have designed Better Call Saul as both a prequel and a sequel to Breaking Bad, following one of that earlier show's colorful supporting characters. Like Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul has been outstanding from the start and depending on how well it sticks its landing in these final episodes, could end up as the best dramatic TV series ever made. And that fascinates me, because Better Call Saul, the series, has been entirely reverse-engineered, designed and built from pieces of the earlier show. Now that it's about to end, it's fun to look back at exactly how the character and story of Saul were crafted from the original seeds sown on Breaking Bad. With that previous series, Vince Gilligan knew the journey he wanted his main character to take. Walter White, played brilliantly by Bryan Cranston, would go from meek high school science teacher to murderous meth manufacturing drug lord. But the path to get from that point A to point B was wide open. With Better Call Saul, it's different. Short intermittent snippets are set in the future after Breaking Bad, But most of the series is an origin story, following the character of shifty lawyer Saul Goodman, whom we first met in season two of Breaking Bad. Saul was and is, played by comedian Bob Odenkirk, as the type of lawyer who talks loudly and carries a heavy shtick, especially in local TV spots advertising his services. Hi, I'm Saul Goodman. Did you know that you have rights? Constitution says you do, and so do I. I believe that until proven guilty, every man, woman, and child in this country is innocent. And that's why I fight for you, Albuquerque! Better Call Saul. Peter Gould wrote the episode of Breaking Bad that introduced Saul Goodman. When it came time to make a series out of Better Call Saul, the writing staff took its inspiration from ideas and lines of dialogue that Gould had intended as throwaways. For example, the series Better Call Saul presented Odenkirk as Jimmy McGill, a low-rent lawyer who would take several seasons to adopt the persona of Saul Goodman. But the seeds were there from the start in the first Breaking Bad episode where Odenkirk's Saul meets Cranston's Walter White. Walter is pretending to be someone else, a man named Mayhew, which is when we learn that the name Saul Goodman is an alias as well. Mayhew! Is that uh, Irish or English? Uh, Irish. Faith in Begora, a fellow potato eater. (laughs) My real name's McGill. Yeah, the Jew thing I just do for the homeboys. They all want a pipe-hitting member of the tribe, so to speak. (sighs) I digress. Um, Better Call Saul not only recalled that exchange, but built upon it. The part of the spin-off series that was set in the past was all about Jimmy McGill and two other prominent characters, neither of whom had appeared in Breaking Bad at all. One was Jimmy's girlfriend, Kim Wexler, a fellow lawyer and, eventually, fellow con artist, played so mysteriously by Ray Seahorn. The other was Jimmy's older brother, Chuck, played by Michael McKeon, whose character was a much more successful and respected attorney. These were great new additions. Kim, like Jimmy McGill and Walter White, was a character we got to watch Breaking Bad over a very slow and sad downward spiral. And the sibling rivalry between Jimmy and Chuck was as wonderful to watch as the one between Frasier and his brother Niles on the sitcom Frasier, which was a spin off from another fabulous sitcom, Cheers. Both those brothers, Niles and Chuck, were created for their respective spin-offs, and Better Call Saul benefited just as greatly from the addition. But Gilligan and Gould weren't through pulling inspiration from Breaking Bad. The short black-and-white scenes showing the current fate of Saul Goodman—let's call them the sequel scenes— Have Saul adopting yet another name and about to return to Albuquerque after hiding undercover as a Cinnabon manager in Nebraska. That may seem random, but in Saul's last conversation with Walter White on Breaking Bad, Saul rejected Walter's demand to continue working as his lawyer by saying he had other plans, very specific plans. Hey, I'm a civilian. I'm not your lawyer anymore. I'm nobody's lawyer. If the fun's over from here on out, I'm Mr. Low Profile, just another douchebag with a job and three pairs of Dockers. If I'm lucky, a month from now, best-case scenario, I'm managing a Cinnabon in Omaha. You're still part of this. Nothing from Breaking Bad, though, is as surprisingly precise as an early indicator of what Better Call Saul would become as another scene from the episode introducing Saul. Walter and his meth-producing partner Aaron Paul is Jesse are upset that Saul won't do what they've asked him to do so they dig a grave sized hole in the desert put on ski masks and abduct Saul covering his head with a hood they tie his hands behind his back drive him to the desert drop him to his knees at gunpoint and remove his hood and that's when Saul gets scared but only until he realizes they aren't who he thinks they are no, no, no. no it wasn't me it was Ignacio he's the one Oh no! Oh no, 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 no! Siempre soy amigo! Siempre! Siempre soy amigo del cartel! Shut up! I just speak English! Malo didn't send you? No, Lalo? Who? Oh, thank God! Oh, Christ! Oh, I thought. What can I do for you, gentlemen? Anything, just tell me what, what you need. Once Saul realizes his abductors weren't sent by Lalo Salamanca, he relaxes completely, even though he's still bound and at gunpoint. Whatever this threat is, it's less scary than Lalo. That's the only mention of Lalo in Breaking Bad, but clearly, from Saul's perspective, he's someone really to be feared. That's why it's so astounding that in the most recent episodes of Better Call Saul, the most menacing and deadly character has been none other than that same Lalo, played by Tony Dalton. The most recent episode of Better Call Saul, back in May, had Lalo kill a major character, so brutally and shockingly that I still haven't forgotten it. What happens now? I have no idea. And AMC sent out no episodes to preview. We do know that for these final episodes, Carol Burnett appears as a newly introduced character, which is really intriguing. And we know that the fate of Ray Sehorn's Kim, whatever it is, will be drastic enough to keep her from making even a single appearance on Breaking Bad, and will complete Jimmy's transformation into the totally amoral Saul Goodman. It's how Gilligan, Gould, and company connect the dots between these new sets of Point A and Point B that will determine just how great a show Better Call Saul ends up being. The devil is in the details, and on this show, so is the brilliance.
0: David Bianculli is a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. He reviewed Better Call Saul, which returns tonight on AMC. After we take a short break... Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead will review a new album by trombonist Jacob Garchik that Kevin describes as quintessential COVID-era jazz. This is fresh air. Our jazz critic Kevin Whitehead says, A lot of recent jazz reflects the COVID era, a proliferation of solo albums, musicians improvising together over the internet, and big bands recording one musician at a time. Kevin says New York trombonist Jacob Garchik's latest album is the kind of oddball project someone stuck at home with time on their hands would dream on.
4: On Jacob Garchuk's album Assembly, the music often takes an unexpected turn, as when a trombone romp gets interrupted by frantic chipmunk music. In 2021, the trombonist and four colleagues recorded a socially distant studio jam session, with each player isolated in the room and in the mix. Then Garchik took those clean tracks and manipulated them, messing with the sound quality, making bold edits, stripping instruments out of a passage, or dropping someone's part or gesture into a new context. For the track Bricolage, Garchik cut up and looped a Thomas Morgan bass line into little repeating vamps. Three months after their jam session, Jacob Garchik brought the players back to the studio to overdub material he'd written in the meantime orchestrating the music after the fact, sometimes with a light touch. Wait for it. ¶¶ At the overdub session, Garchuk capitalized on the wide range of textures and sonorities that Sam Newsom gets on soprano saxophone. For Fantasia, Newsom fit his mouthpiece into a plastic hose to blow throbbing low notes like an Australian didgeridoo or a failing air conditioner. On drums. For me, that's too bizarre not to like. Producers often strive to make overdubs inconspicuous. Jacob Garchik's disruptions and titles like Pastiche, Collage, Bricolage, and Album Title Assembly all call attention to the fabrication process. For the track Ide Fix, Garchik took a skipping record lick that pianist Jacob Sax improvised and built a loopy piece around it. Some edits are seamless, and some you can't miss. Manipulations and interruptions aside, there's a lot of good straight-ahead jazz blowing on the album assembly, and some sublime moments. On collage, a layer of horns periodically descends on the improvising, an atmospheric haze recalling jazz arranger Gil Evans. Reflects its time some kind of way. Jacob Garchik's assembly is quintessential COVID era jazz, starting with a socially distanced session and then proceeding to his mad scientists' scheming in isolation. It's music for an era when we don't know where or when the next disruption will arrive, and we value any calm interludes in between.
0: Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, the essential guide to jazz stories on film. He reviewed Assembly by trombonist Jacob Garchik. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, Rafael Augustine, who wrote for the comedy-drama TV series Jane the Virgin, will tell us about growing up as the son of undocumented immigrants. His parents were doctors in Ecuador, but after coming to the U.S., They worked at a car wash and Kmart to get by, while Raphael learned English, made friends, and became his parents' translator. He's written a new memoir called Illegally Yours. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yacundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross.